0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1 through 9, which I entitled, Shining Light in a Dark Place. If you've ever read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that Corinth was a pretty dark place filled with a lot of immorality, and many people were rebellious against God. And yet, an incredible an incredible movement swept this group of people. Now, anytime we start off in a book like this, usually we'd like to do a little introduction and try to lay out, okay, who's the author? Who are they addressing it to? In 1 Corinthians 1, the author states, this letter is from Paul. And so we can gather from that that Paul the Apostle wrote this letter. <laughs> also, um, the dating of this book is actually very interesting. There are a number of chronological markers throughout the New Testament that gives us, gives us a pretty reliable date of this book. We know that, uh, based on our study in the Book of Acts that Paul probably arrived in the city of Corinth in about AD 49, the spring of AD 49. And this letter was probably written several years later, around AD 54 or 55. Now, it's interesting that most scholars, including the most skeptical of the Bible, actually acknowledge that Paul likely wrote this letter and that it was written around this time. And so that's very interesting. I think, you know, a hundred years ago, people were doubting whether or not Paul actually wrote this letter. But modern archaeology has actually uncovered pieces of evidence that gives us more assurance that indeed Paul wrote this letter, and that it was written at the time in which it was purported to have been written. Third, the destination. Paul tells us that he's writing to the group at Corinth, the Church of God in Corinth in verse 2. So I think as we launch into this study, it's going to be helpful for us to have sort of a background of the city of Corinth. Now, this city was renowned as a, uh, as a wealthy port city. Um, here you have a map of Greece. And it was interesting because... Corinth was located on an isthmus, about one mile long. And what's interesting is that when normally what would happen is when people would sail west, they would have to go around the Peloponnese and go through the southern tip there. But What would happen is that they would have to encounter about 200 miles of perilous voyage on on seas that were very rough and violent. And so the Greeks figured out that they could actually port their boats on this isthmus. And what they would do is they would hire people in Corinth to take these boats and actually drag them on land, what they would do is they would line the isthmus with wooden boards greased with animal fat, and they would literally drag these boats across the isthmus and make their way to the other side. This would actually take two or three days. But um, by traveling through this slipway, um, they would not only save tons of time, but also it, it probably saved them from this perilous danger of having to go around the violent sea uh, of the Peloponnese. And so people would, would come in, they would port, and these you know, sailors would spend several days in Corinth. Here's kind of a, an aerial view of modern day Corinth. And uh, as you can see, there's a narrow channel that they have actually cut into the isthmus. And as you can see, these, um, these uh, ocean liners are passing through this very narrow area. Now, Corinth actually boasted one of the largest populations in the ancient world. Some estimates that we have tell us that there were about 200 free people living there and about 500,000 slaves. And so two-thirds of the population in Corinth were actually slaves. And at its zenith, Corinth had about three-quarters of a million people. So it, it was about the same size as Columbus, Ohio. Also, Corinth was regarded as the center of intellectual activity. It was located in close proximity to Athens. So the ideas that were floating around Athens often drifted to Corinth. And also, it was famed for its Isthmian Games. This was sort of like the Olympics. And this game that they would hold every single year was actually uh, such a popular game that they would draw people from around the ancient world to come and compete. In addition to that, it contained a large pantheon of gods with its principal temples dedicated to Aphrodite and Apollo. Actually, modern archaeologists have uncovered the ruins of Corinth. As you can see in the distance there, you have the Temple of Apollo still standing, parts of it anyway. And uh, many of the people in the city worshipped Aphrodite. And um, the worship of Aphrodite was very interesting. Um, (laughs) Laughter the um, inhabitants of the city would often um, give their daughters, who were prepubescent, you know, teenagers, over to temple service at the Aphrodite temple, and these young women would often engage in sex with worshippers who are who would come to worship Aphrodite, and they would do they would have uh, sex with these temple prostitutes as a fertility rite. And later in the evening, these women would serve as prostitutes. And so these young women often had a really tough life. And if one of the worshipers accidentally impregnated one of these young women, the temple priestesses would insist that these women would uh, have to undergo an abortion and would do it in a very crude way. And so many of these women actually had a very short lifespan It was pretty savage. Also, the city of Corinth was extremely immoral. You know, this place made Las Vegas seem like Disneyland. And, uh, you know, these seamen who would come and port in the city, you know, they had a pocket full of cash. And you know how uh, seamen are when they're at sea for months. Uh, They decide that they're going to come and uh, party and spend their money that they've accumulated. And you know, while they're in the city of Corinth, they might as well engage in a little bit of worship uh, at the Aphrodite Temple. The Romans actually uh, said that anybody who entered the city of Corinth would actually pollute themselves. Just, just the mere act of walking through the city. And they actually coined a term to Corinthianize as a term that represented doing some sort of immoral act. So these guys were famed for their immorality. If you're looking to have a hedonistic experience, Corinth was the place to go. Also, this city was marked by moral anarchy and self-indulgence. That's one of the things that you see uh, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians is just the, the gross immorality that these people were engaged in, these people were immersed in a life of sexual experience, hedonism, and um, yet the Corinthians weren't spiritually resistant, surprisingly. You know, a lot of times when we see people who are engaged in, you know, drug abuse or alcohol abuse or People who outwardly say that they are resistant to God, that they're atheists or agnostics, a lot of times that scares us. We don't want to talk to them about the message of Christ because we think that they're going to be completely resistant to that. And so we tend to mark people just based on outward appearance and say, well, they'll just never listen. And yet it's interesting when you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, it's very clear that. The people there, despite their immoral way of life, even though they were living in this culture of moral anarchy, were actually very receptive to the message of Christ, that many of them sensed a need that they had, that their indulgence, that their sexual exploits couldn't fill. And often that's the way it is even today. Where many times, you know, we we, we look at somebody and we think, oh, he'll never listen to this. He seems perfectly content with his life. He seems like he's having a lot of fun. And so why would he ever listen to me? And yet we find out as we talk to people that, that that thin veneer that, you know, everything is all right. That when you start to unpeel these layers, you start to realize that people feel a sense of emptiness that they're often trying to mask with some sort of pleasurable experience or by some sort of pursuit in life that they hope will give them meaning. Interestingly, we get a narrative about Paul's encounter with the Corinthians in Acts chapter 18. In verse 1 and 2, we're told Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla they had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. Uh, It's interesting, these characters, Priscilla and Aquila, they actually become prominent figures in the New Testament after Paul meets them in Acts chapter 18. Now, it's interesting that Luke gives us sort of this little statement here that they left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. We know that uh, Aquila was actually born in Pontus, and that um, he traveled westward to Italy, probably landed in Rome, but that Claudius, because he was upset with the Christians there, um, actually banned Christians, the Jewish Christians, from being in the city. And here's a case where we see the Bible actually snapping together with what we find in history. A lot of times people will say, well, the Bible is just ahistorical. I mean, it's, there's so many contradictions in the Bible, you can't even trust it, especially when you start looking at the historical stuff. I mean, it's just trash. And yet, time after time, we see that archaeology actually corroborates what the Bible says. For example, Suetonius, in his famous book, The Life of Christ, this is the Roman historian, says, as the Jews were making constant disturbances in the instigation of Crestus, which most scholars believe is actually a misspelling of Christus, Jesus, that he, Claudius, banished them from Rome. So it's likely that what happened was Aquila and Priscilla were in Rome when Claudius decided that he was going to put this decree out that no Jews... Uh, who were preaching this message of Christ, this Crestus guy, were allowed to remain in Rome. And so in that decree, it turns out Priscilla and Aquila actually migrated toward Corinth, where they settled and eventually met Paul. So it's interesting that these guys were probably believers in Christ before they actually came to Corinth. And so it seems like God was sort of orchestrating this event where it looks like Priscilla and Aquila were in Rome, stationed there, and yet he wanted them to link arms with Paul and for them to become partners in service to uh, to him. Later we find out in Romans 16, verse uh, 3 and 4, that Paul refers to this couple As Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. Notice the way that uh, he changes it. Because in Acts chapter 18, Aquila, the man, was referred to first and then Priscilla. Which that's the way you normally would do it in the ancient world. You would mention the man first and then the woman. But in Romans chapter 16, verse 3 and 4, Paul flips it around probably because Priscilla became uh, such a powerful Christian worker that she became uh, maybe the more famous of the two, the more renowned. Then we're told in verse 3 that Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. So they had a lot in common. They were tent makers by trade, and these tents aren't like you know the Coleman tents that you buy in the store. These were leather tents that required a lot of skill to produce. And so apparently what Paul would do when he would enter a city, he would would, uh, stitch up these tents made from leather by day, and he would support himself doing this. Which actually, whenever somebody was under training as a rabbi, they would insist that the student, the disciple, would actually have to learn a trait. So that wherever they traveled, they could, they could take care of themselves. So apparently, Paul learned tent making, and by day, he would work hard to support himself. And then when evening came, he would clean up, and then he would start preaching the message of Christ in the city. And this was helpful because he was able to take care of his own needs, but also it allowed him to be able to take care of himself when the inhabitants of the city were claiming that he was just preaching this message for money. Um, We know that in this case, Paul actually renounced his right to receive support from the Corinthians because they were accusing him of being one of these Greek sophists. You know, these people would come through a city and they were renowned for their ability to speak. And they would speak about philosophical ideas that were current. At times they would uh, talk about ethics. And in return, what they would do is they would expect their listeners to pay them money. So the Corinthians actually marked Paul when he walked through the the city gates as one of these sophists looking for money, spreading new ideas. So as a result, Paul actually said, I'm not going to take any money from you guys because I don't want you to be confused and to think that I'm just doing this because I'm looking to get rich. Um, it's uh, interesting that in Second Corinthians chapter three, verse eight, he actually says in a similar case with the Thessalonians that I did not even take a meal from you without paying for it. Can you imagine that inviting the Apostle Paul over to your house for dinner, and so you start laying out your food, and you know the Apostle Paul before he he sits down, opens up his wallet, and he rips out a $10 bill and drops it onto the table. And you're like, well, what's that for? And he's like, uh, for dinner. And you're like, no, no, no. You, know, you pick up the $10 bill, you try to hand it back to him, and you're like, I insist. This is, you know, you've done so much for me. I just, I want you to have this meal for free. And he's like, no, 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 I insist. And uh, if you don't take my money, I'm just going to have to walk out. And they are like, all right, well, let's take this $10 bill. You know, uh, it was pretty hardcore that he would do that. But I think this shows that, you know, it's important to show integrity, especially in the area of money. You know, think about many churches today. The American public, we don't even really bat an eye whenever we hear about the latest scandal with a televangelist who's been stealing money from his, you know, uh, congregation mostly made up of people who are impoverished. And then, you know, you find out that this televangelist has a private jet, that he has a palatial mansion that has a driveway lined with Maseratis and Bentleys. And so I think a lot of people in our culture today look at that and think, well, that's what Christianity is all about. It's a haven for criminals, people who are looking to take advantage of the vulnerable and those who are poor. And yet, Paul was scrupulous to make sure that he wouldn't fall under that accusation. And I think in the same way, you know, in our fellowship, we are at pains to show financial transparency. And it's very clear, too, when you meet many of our leaders that they're not doing this for money. You know, I remember the first time I met uh, our senior elder, I remember we were uh, meeting over on 16th Avenue, and he you know, uh, came puttering up in his 15-year-old Honda Civic into the driveway to teach our Bible study. And I just remember my, my jaw dropping to the ground, thinking to myself, why is he driving this piece of junk? And um, I remember one time as I got to know him, I jumped into the car with him to go to the corner store, and I'm like just scoffing at how, terrible his car is. I'm like, this thing sucks. Why do you even drive this thing around? I'd be embarrassed to drive this. And he was eager to defend it. He's like, dude, this thing's awesome. (laughs) He's like, you know, it's got air conditioning. I got a tape player. He's like, you know, and eventually this thing makes it up to 75 miles per hour. And, you know, he would always boast about how he got great gas mileage. He would get like, you know, 37 miles to the gallon. And so he actually drove this thing for five more years until finally it started, it sprung a gas leak. And I remember, you know, jumping into his car and noticing, I was like, what? There's like this, these fumes, these gas fumes in your car. What is that? And, you know, it was dizzying. And he was like, um, I realized that my, my, a gas tank is leaking. But I decided to hold on to this car because I calculated it and realized I'm still getting 30 miles to the gallon. And I'm like, this thing is a rolling Molotov cocktail. We're going to die in this thing if we ever crash. Now, um, you know, I question him for his judgment on doing that, but One thing I never questioned was his integrity when it came to to money matters. You knew that he wasn't doing this because he was trying to get rich. He was doing this because he cared about the things of God. And that's exactly what Paul was was exhibiting here. We read in verse four and five, each Sabbath, Sabbath, uh, they found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. And Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia Paul spent all of his time preaching the word, and he testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood is upon your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles. So it's kind of weird. You know, he would uh, take his tunic, and he would just shake the dust off of his clothes and, and move on. And this was actually something that Jesus prescribed in John or Luke chapter 10 where he sent out his disciples two by two and he said, you know, if people don't listen to you, if they reject what you have to say, go to the edge of the city and shake out your tunic publicly as a sign to them. And it was a way of saying that they were under greater accountability now that they had uh, heard the message of Christ. And he says, now I'm gonna go and preach To the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and so Paul was always looking for receptive people. He would meet some opposition, and then he would move on to find others who were actually willing to listen to him. And I think this gives us sort of a guide for how we should proceed as well. The Bible teaches that one of the most important things for people to hear is the message of Christ. You know, if the Bible actually contains. The message of life, the message of salvation, then it's the most important thing that anybody could ever hear. And so one of the things that God calls on us to do is to go and share the love of Christ with those who don't know him. And he says that we should move on if people don't want to give us a hearing for a number of reasons. First of all, it shows respect for their free will. One of the things that God does when he is trying to initiate with us to help us turn away from our rebellion is that he decides that he is going to set up a line where he will not circumvent our free will. He will not violate that, even though he could, because he wants to make sure that we are choosing to have a relationship with him, that he's not forcing himself upon us. And so likewise, when we are sharing the message of Christ, you know, battering somebody with the message of Christ when they're not willing to listen at times can be a violation of their free will. It's, it's showing disrespect for their choice. Also, battering people with the message of Christ might actually inoculate them from the truth. We might be doing more harm than good. You know, have you ever had that experience when you go to a matinee movie? And then, you know, you step out after being in the darkness for, you know, three hours. And then you walk out and, you know, that, that piercing light that comes through the door it just hits you. And you're like, oh, you know, it's just, it's painful. And that's kind of the way it is with us, you know, where a lot of times we're living in darkness. We're, we're deluded in our thinking. We've, we've decided that we don't need God. And then when God finally shines light into our life, the truth of what Christ has done, it grates against us. A lot of times we have kind of a negative experience when we hear the message of Christ for the very first time because we don't want God interfering in our business. And so when we're insisting that people listen to us, when they make it clear that they don't want to listen to us, then we might actually be hardening their hearts. You know, it's kind of like when you're, I don't know, uh, I don't know if you lift weights there's some people in this room that look like they lift weights. you know. But if you've ever uh, lifted some weights, like uh, bench press, which probably that's all that guys do, right? When they go to the gym, they just hit the chest. And so if you are using barbells constantly, one of the things you'll notice is that right here um, in your palm, you'll notice that you're, you'll start to build calluses. And that's because, you know, when when your skin experiences irritation over a period of time, it actually compensates by building up extra layers of skin. And what that does is it actually creates insensitivity. Likewise, when we hear the message of Christ, a lot of times it irritates us. Uh, We grate against it, but over time, if we keep hearing it over and over again, and yet we resist, we can actually grow an insensitivity to what God has to say. And so maybe our role as God's messengers isn't to lead this person to Christ at the moment, but maybe he wants to take, take this person through us from like negative 15 to like negative four to at least maybe be open in the future to hearing about what he has to say. Number three, focusing on our, our attention on unreceptive people may actually prevent us from seeing those who might be open to spiritual things. Now I think we're too... Um, quick to give up. A lot of times when anyone shows some awkwardness or doesn't know what to say when we're talking to them about spiritual things, we're just like, well, they're not interested. Well, maybe it's because they haven't thought about it in 10 years. Maybe that's the reason why they don't know what to say. Maybe it's not, you know, resistance, but confusion. But I also think that there are cases where people have heard the message of Christ they're clear about that, and yet it's, it's obvious that they are not interested. In that case, I think it's important for us to look for people who are receptive. Verse seven, then he left and went to the, the home of Titius Justice, a Gentile who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. So that's kind of interesting. Um, the people in the synagogue actually resisted him, so he, he heads over to... The house of this guy, Titius Justice, next door to the synagogue. That's, I mean, so he sets up shop right across the street from the synagogue. That's like setting up a taco stand across from a Mexican restaurant, right? (laughs) Trying to steal business. As you know, people are passing along. They're like, hey, hey, you want to hear about the message of Christ? You know, as they're heading toward the synagogue. Well, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue and everyone in his household, believed in the Lord and many others in Corinth, also heard Paul, became believers, and were actually baptized. So he actually won over the leader of the synagogue, this guy named Crispus. And this created sort of a chain reaction, a domino effect where many people started to show interest in the message of Christ. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I'm with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. That's interesting. You know, you envision the Apostle Paul. You know, you think about this guy. You know, he's just wiry, tough as nails, um, battered. You know, he has uh, battle scars from persecution. You know, the kind of guy, it's just like he's, he's like a brown banana. You know, the saying goes, you can't bruise a brown banana, you know. So this guy's just walking around. He's like the Terminator, you know. And yet, uh, here God comes to Paul in a dream and says, don't be afraid. He gives him comfort. And I think that's very interesting, that he would encourage Paul. And that Paul the Apostle actually experienced discouragement and fear. Because I find myself often discouraged or afraid in situations where God is calling me to new steps of faith. You know, maybe the reason why he was afraid was the moral anarchy that he saw in the city that probably intimidated him. You know, you got to think. The Apostle Paul was actually a Pharisee. These guys were like the most righteous people you could possibly imagine, the most religiously devout. And yet, You know, he was faced with this sea of immorality. Must have been thinking to himself, I'm not sure that these guys are even going to listen to me. But more likely, he was probably afraid of persecution because right here in the text it says, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you. And so it's likely that he actually feared persecution. He had withstood the test of persecution in Philippi where he was beaten he was thrown in jail, and yet he, he demonstrated great joy. Think about that other example, too, where he was in Derby. He got stoned outside of the city, stood up, and walked back into the city, even though they thought he was dead. And yet, maybe what happened is that over time, this started to get to him. And, you know, a lot of times when we share the message of Christ, you know, we're not going to face the same kind of persecution, maybe that Paul the Apostle did, but you know, it grates against us, it, it, it bothers us when we step out in faith to share our, 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 you know, the message of Christ with people and they like laugh at us or, you know, they scoff at us, our family members, our friends who think we're completely deranged for devoting our lives to this. And so it's easy in, in those cases to want to cower, to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep my mouth shut so I don't have to face this anymore. But um, it's possible, too, that he feared the people in Corinth wouldn't actually give him a hearing. And that's probably why God said, for I have many people in this city who belong to me. He encourages him. You're going to encounter a lot of people who are going to say no, but there are going to be people who say yes. And you need to just keep finding those people. Because I have many people in this city. Likewise, you know, we might be encountering discouragement as we share our message of, of faith and we think to ourselves, it's impossible. People are not going to listen. And yet, God may be saying to us, don't be afraid. I have many people in this city. You know, your job isn't to make these people receptive. Your job is to just faithfully share the love of Christ. And so... Um, We also read in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2 and 3, Paul says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Again, we get indications that Paul was fearful about what he would encounter in this city. Partly because the Corinthian people, they were a proud people. You know, Julius Caesar in AD 46 actually renovated the entire city. So they had this spectacular architecture and these great buildings. They were this intellectual hub. They were incredibly wealthy. And so Paul must have been looking at that and thinking to himself, how are are any people going to listen from this city? Indeed, there were many people in this city who were unwilling to listen because we find out later on in the book of 1 Corinthians that not many of these people were noble. Not many of them were wise. And so it was the people who were sort of the, the, the downtrodden, the people that most wouldn't associate with who were actually receptive. And so I think it's important for us not to be afa- afraid to share the message of Christ. There might be somebody God has put in your life, either in your class, maybe at work, who you might be looking at them and thinking, you know, they've got their lives together, They're getting good grades. They look like they're successful. They look like they're having a lot of fun. And yet, when you peel back those layers and and you you find out more about their lives, you, you sense that they feel that there's something missing in their lives. And really, nothing that we can ever encounter in life Nothing that we could ever take and try to stuff into that void we feel is ever going to fill us because God says he's the only thing that will truly satisfy us. And so we have to count on that, that people sense their need deep down and that the only thing that's going to to fill them, satisfy them is the message of Christ. Verse 11, so Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the word of God but when Gallio became governor of Achaia, now we should, we should pause here. This is interesting because skeptics of the Bible for many, many decades would say this is another clear indication that one of Luke's disciples actually wrote this maybe hundreds of years later. Because we know that Corinth never had a proconsul or a governor because Roman provinces were actually split up between senatorial provinces and imperial provinces. Senatorial provinces had proconsuls or governors, whereas imperial provinces had legates. And so they said, look, here's another case where the Bible can be demonstrated as historically inaccurate. Yet in the 1900s, um, archaeologists uncovered the Delphi stone, dated to about AD 51 and 52, which states Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, corroborating what the Bible says. And so, you know, we see things like this emerge from archaeology, from history, that give us further confidence that what God says here in the Bible is actually true. Some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. And they accused Paul of uh, persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. So, you know, Paul's life was sort of like a broken record. You know, he would enter a city, he would start sharing the message of Christ at a synagogue, he would face some opposition, and then Jewish people in that city would get jealous and persecute him. It was happening again, but just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, "Listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I would have a reason to accept your case. But since it's merely a question of words and names in your Jewish law, take care of it yourself. I refuse to judge such matters." It's clear that you know Gallio was not um, favorable to the Jewish people. He despised them, probably. And then he threw them out of the courtroom. The crowd then grabbed Sosinies, the leader of the synagogue, the replacement for Christmas, and beat him right there in the courtroom. So, you know, he gets this delegation of people to come before Gallio to accuse Paul. And Gallio's like, whatever, I don't care. And so his own people started to beat the crap out of him in the presence of Gallio. And we're told Gallio paid no attention. He was sort of like, uh, next. All right. Um, And then we find out in verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left with the brothers and sailed for Syria. So there you have the story of Paul in Corinth. Now when we turn to our passage in 1 Corinthians 1, we read, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Whoa! I mean, you know, he wrote this four or five years later. And this Sosthenes guy, this guy, he, he apparently was known, well known to the Corinthians. He didn't even have to mention, you know, Sosthenes, this guy who used to be the synagogue leader. It was clear this was probably the Sosthenes guy in uh, Acts chapter 18. And so you can imagine, you know, as his compatriots are pounding on him, And, you know, leave him on the floor uh, and go about their business. You know, Paul walks up to him maybe afterwards and is like, uh, (laughs) so that didn't work out so well, did it? And uh, he probably showed him some compassion, shared the message of Christ with him further. And eventually Sosthenes became a believer in Christ. Well, then we're told, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty standard greeting from Paul. But he uses this word sanctified, which, you know, if you're allergic to, like, weird words in the Bible, this is one of those, right? (laughs) But the word sanctified just simply means to set apart or to make distinct. And it's not because, you know, we're, we're holier than thou or more righteous than people. But it's that God himself, based on what he's done through Christ, has set us apart as his own people. And he says to the church of God in Corinth. I think this is interesting, not only because despite their immoral behavior, despite the moral anarchy, despite the incredible wealth that this city had, many people were receptive to the message of Christ, and a burgeoning community of God actually was growing up here. Now, when we think of a church, you know, the modern ear hears that and thinks of a church building. But in the ancient world, they didn't have church buildings. Um, People met from house to house. We have indications like that from Acts chapter 2. And later we find in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, that Paul actually uses the plural form to the churches in Corinth. And so he uses the singular here, but he also uses the plural later on, indicating that they had the church, which represents the believers in Christ, not a building, but that these people were meeting from house to house. So there were many churches within this city. House churches, very similar to what we have here. He says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Jesus Christ. For in him you have been enriched in every way, and all your speaking and all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. This would be very difficult to say if you knew anything about the Corinthian way of life. If you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, there are so many things wrong with this group. There's a guy who's actually involved in some sort of incest. He's sleeping with his father's wife, as we'll find out. People were getting drunk uh, during their meetings. They're having these meetings that were totally wild and ecstatic. People were speaking in tongues and prophesying and freaking out all the non-Christian people who were showing up. And, uh, you know, they just were totally carnally minded. They didn't care. And yet, Paul was able to say this about them. That, you know, he's thankful because of the grace God has given to him. This word grace simply means the unmerited gift of God. You know, uh, the Bible teaches that there is a huge gulf between us and God. We've done a lot of things wrong in our lives. And God says that he cannot be in the presence of moral imperfection. Because he himself is morally perfect. And so, you know, in our mind, a lot of times we we think to ourselves, if I just work hard at being a good person, then maybe God will accept me. Well, it doesn't work that way. Because the difference between you and other people may seem like a big difference, but from God's standpoint, really there's no difference between people who are morally imperfect. Because they're not perfection. And so, you know, we, we think to ourselves, well, if, if I'm just better than this guy over here, then, then maybe God will accept me. But that would be arbitrary on his part. You know, what if God said, all right, the cutoff is one billion sins, right? Just, just stay under that and then you're good. You can come in. Now, let's say, you know, one guy hit one billion sins, dies, and God's like, Okay, you just barely made the cut. I'm going to keep my eye on you. <laughs> uh, you. You just barely made the cut. And then the next guy sins one billion in one time. And God's like, you didn't make the cut, sorry. What's the difference between those two people? That seems pretty unjust, sort of arbitrary, right? That's why God says, the way I'm going to set the standard is based on my character, which is moral perfection. Therefore, everybody falls short because none of us are morally perfect, either in deed or thought. And so God says, instead, instead of trying to work for salvation, instead of trying to earn your way to me, what about receiving this gift? And it's not like the kind of gift that you get at Christmas that you're like, oh, I really appreciate this, but I didn't really need it, so I'm happy to get it. This is more like a handout. You know, the reason we don't like a handout is because it's something we need. It puts us in a position where we feel patronized by the person who's placing themselves in a position of superiority over us. That's why we don't like handouts. We grade against that. But that's exactly what God offers us. If you want salvation, if you want a relationship with me, you're going to have to accept this handout the free gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And he also says, therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus. Um, God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. So these guys were incredibly gifted people. They were... um, Uh, had a lot of potential, but it turns out they had a lot of problems with their character. And he says this striking statement, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it doesn't matter how many times they trip up and fall back into moral failure, God isn't going to reject them. That's one of the really surprising things about entering a relationship with God that even though we continually make mistakes, he doesn't reject us because God's grace covers that all. Jesus' forgiveness pays for everything that we've done, not only in the past, but also on into the future. And, you know, he's going to say that we're blameless when Christ returns. Why? Because of our faithfulness? No, he says right there, because of God's faithfulness. And so, according to the Apostle Paul, we can be a walking contradiction in that we claim we are following God and yet continually falling back into our moral failings, knowing that God is faithful to us. All right, let's draw a couple points of application. I think the first thing is that God wants to meet you where you're at in your life, just like these Corinthian people. You know, some of you might be coming here investigating Christianity, and thinking to yourself, there's no way that God would want anything to do with me after all the things that I've done in my life. I mean, the things that I've done are simply unforgivable. And yet, God's grace, his forgiveness, is greater than even our worst wrongdoing. And, you know, that was my experience. You know, I I was in a really dark place in my life where I felt like God had given up on me. And it was in the midst of that that God was able to reach out to me. Secondly, God calls on us to shine like a beacon of light in the dark world in which we live. Not only through the things that we say, but also by the way that we live. And so we should consider how we represent Christ. You know, are we a light that's attractive, that maybe is polarizing to people? Or uh, do we just blend in with everybody else? Why don't we pray? Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be teaching this book, Lord. And um, I look forward to what you're going to teach all of us as we study through this. I especially thank you for reaching a city like Corinth and the people who are living there. I um, read through that book and... Resonate with um, a lot of the problems that those guys have. And um, I'm grateful that you reached somebody like me in the place that I was at in my life. And I pray for anybody who just uh, feels like they're in a dark place, feel far away from you, who maybe feel like you're not interested in them. I pray that it would be clear tonight and also as we study through this book that um, you're intensely interested. In starting a relationship with them. And um, we thank you that you initiate with us even when we are often running away from you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.